Uh, more um, important today because uh, confess, please, parents, whose kids had chocolate this morning? Yeah, you're not showing your hands, but I know they did. I know they did. Yeah, okay. Well, you, uh, well, you're, you, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, so I, and now I presume that's not the norm. Um, it's just one of those peculiar Christian traditions where regular, sensible parenting is abandoned for a day, and we just let our kids eat chocolate for breakfast. And I know you've had some as well. Um, so we turbocharge our kids with chocolate, we put them in the car, we get to church, sing a few songs, and then we hand them over to the, our dear Sunday school teachers to manage for the next well, how long do you want? <laughs> I'm a, I've got 30 minutes. I could push 40, maybe go for the hour. And what's your strategy for this afternoon? Are you just going to keep playing them with chocolate to, for the momentum, or are you going to let them come down and deal with that? I don't know, but let us pray at least for the Sunday school teachers this morning, shall we? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us here on today of all days, Lord, how wonderful that we can come together um, as your bride, as your church, to celebrate all that Easter is about, Lord. And I pray this morning that your word will come through clear, Lord, and we will learn more about you, and your, your spirit will feed our spirit. Lord, our spirits long for your feeding, and Lord, and may that be so this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Right, now, this last week we've been through is traditionally called Holy Week or Passion Week. And as with anything that we're quite familiar with culturally, there's a danger, isn't there, of reducing it to a bit of a kitschy, celebration of elements that are easy to recreate, perhaps in a kid's play or on an Easter card. It's easy to fall back on familiarity. The Easter season, if you like, starts with Pancake Day, which is somewhat inconveniently on a Tuesday. And I don't really know why. I mean, whose idea was it to start something significant on a Tuesday, in between making packed lunches and finding socks for your kids, you remember it's pancake day. And so an extra level of stress is introduced to the morning routine. And you start whipping up some batter and looking at the bottom of your fruit and veg basket on the off chance. You might have some lemons loitering around. And then you remember, as you're making them, how last year you thought to yourself, I really need more practice leading up to Pancake Day this year, but that hasn't happened, and it still takes at least two or three attempts to get the pancakes right. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, good. And this, of course, kicks off Lent, where some of us make a half-hearted attempt to quit something like chocolate, or the really godly amongst us, tea or coffee, and then Palm Sunday sneaks up on us to remind us about 
the start of school Easter holidays, or at least Holy Week. And we're back to those familiar stories of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, palm branches, Jesus' trial, a bad guy called Barabbas, the crucifixion, but it's okay because Jesus rises three days later and all's well. Thank goodness that we can rely on our high streets to remind us of the real message behind Easter with good old-fashioned marketing. Can I have this slide, please? Here, we have an Easter bunny sitting peacefully next to a brightly coloured bunch of Easter eggs nestled at the foot of a cross in what looks like a bright summer's morning in rural England. Thank you, W.H. Smith, everyone as you were, and please enjoy your chocolate and your bank holiday weekend. What a strange blend of Christianity, paganism, and hedonism Easter has become for the majority of people in Britain and in many other places in the world. It's amazing what we can come up with left to our own devices. And honestly, it's a bit of a mess. But as you read through the actual gospel accounts of the Easter story in the Bible, largely the actual week in history that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, this holy week, or Passion Week, you're presented with this astonishing and intense catalogue of errors. People around Jesus getting everything wrong. From a merely human perspective, the Easter story is a bit of a disaster story. And it really helps to understand the crucifixion in this wider context of the events that led to it, to get the full picture of what's going on. So let's go through some of them. And remember, this is just one week. Starting in Matthew 26, and I'm using Matthew for most of the scripture references, and they'll come up on the screen. Um, we have people plotting to kill Jesus. But it's not the political establishment at the moment. It's not Herod rearing his ugly head again from the Christmas story. It's the priests, the very people who are meant to represent God, teach about God, minister to people on behalf of him, uphold justice through him, are trying to kill him. Clearly, they don't recognize Jesus as God. Matthew 26, verses 3 to 5, says this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Cephas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. This is a chilling account for a number of reasons. 
And then a few verses later, we have the account of the woman pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And it says that the disciples were indignant. It could have been sold for a great deal and the money used for the poor, they said. But Jesus had to step in and say, stop bothering this woman. She has done a noble thing for me. She is preparing me for my, for my burial. A, conc a concluding point, by the way, that the disciples didn't get. Certainly not in light of coming events. And this is just one of a number of direct references Jesus made about his upcoming death and resurrection that the disciples completely missed. These are the guys who have spent years traveling with Jesus in ministry, and yet they still can't discern the big picture that Jesus is working out. And then we have Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who immediately after this event with the woman and the perfume went to the chief of priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. That's Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Not only is the religious establishment plotting to kill Jesus, their God, but Judas, one of the 12 disciples, amongst those who knows Jesus best, independently decides to help them. And he does it for money. This is as base and as backhanded as you can get. It's a disaster. And the situation with Judas gets uglier when later that day, they are celebrating the Passover together before Jesus gets arrested and Jesus lands this bombshell during the meal saying, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And Judas, who has already begun the process, already begun the process of betraying him, responds with, surely not I, Rabbi. In the Gospel of Luke, 22.3, it says that by this point, Satan had entered Judas. And sure enough, we see the influence of the father of lies, as Jesus describes Satan, resorting to, to deceit, corruption, manipulation, and self-centeredness. But on the other hand, we have Peter, on the same night that Judas knowingly and actively turned against Jesus, we have Peter's desperate, but in the end failed, allegiance to Jesus. In Matthew 26, 31 to 35, we read, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away. On account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, hello, <laughs> clue, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Sometimes Peter gets a bit of a bad rap. (laughs) But they all said the same. Not only did Peter deny knowing Jesus three times when he was confronted by people in the courtyard of the high priest, but together with the rest of the disciples, he deserted Jesus and fled the scene when Judas turned up with some soldiers. Here it is in Matthew 26, 55 to 56. At that that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. All of them. Jesus' closest friends who have witnessed miracle after miracle in his greatest hour of need, hours after pledging their allegiance to him to the point of death, desert him. It's almost unbelievable. What a disaster. And if you're wondering what happened to Judas, the next morning, the next morning he hangs himself. This shocking account is recorded in Matthew 27, 1 to 5. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? They said, see to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. And then he went and hanged himself. This is horrible. The weak is lurching from one ugly disaster to the next. When Jesus is taken to Pilate, the governor, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, the religious establishment, they begin their lobbying of false accusations. This is their moment. And they seize on it with voracious intensity and literally shouted together in front of Pilate, crucify him. Their hatred for him is visceral. And I don't know if you've ever experienced the full force of false accusation or just blatant lies from a powerful institution, but it must be a terrifying position to be in. 
and their influence spreads like wildfire, wildfire amongst the public. So when just a week ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem being welcomed with palm branches like a hero, already the crowd has completely turned on him. So fickle. This is the account of Matthew 27, 22 to 23. Pilate asks them, what should I do then with, with Jesus who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. And then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, shouting all the more, crucify him. Now, it's in this position that you need justice. You need the power of the state to step in, objectively look at the evidence, and protect you from slander and falsehood, and even administer the necessary legal consequences to those who are doing the lying in court. But here we have yet another disaster Pilate's lack of courage, his lack of leadership, his lack of conviction, his willingness to go along with populist opinion for political gain in the face of clear injustice that he admits himself is pathetic. And dare I say it, familiar. Matthew 27, 24, 26 says... When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. No, you're not. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Oh, don't speak for me. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, and he handed him over to be crucified. Now, finally, we have the Roman soldiers who were in charge of crucifying Jesus, mocking him, spitting on him, and beating him. This is Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. This is brutal. There have been a number of stories in recent years of police, either in this country or in others, using too much physical force on someone, innocent or guilty, and it causes uproar. I'm sure some examples come to mind. The Roman soldiers were the police force of their day, implementing law and order in the Roman Empire. This is just pure bullying. Violent men with no filter let loose on an innocent man. 
but they don't care. If they've been given the permission to crucify this person, they make a sport out of it. Now, for the sake of time, I haven't been able to cover other details like the disciples arguing over who was the greatest, Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, some of the disciples falling asleep in Gethsemane when Jesus asked them to stay awake, or one of them cutting off a soldier's ear. But in just this one week, we've covered the religious establishment, the political establishment, Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, which likely includes family, the general public, and Roman soldiers, the police. All getting everything wrong. They've made Easter into a disaster story. What section of society is left out here? None. We've got the religious leaders of the day working directly against what they should be standing up for. The political establishment shunning responsibility for justice. We have Jesus' closest friends betraying and deserting him. The general public are swayed in the moment, unable to make a rational decision for themselves. And we have soldiers, effectively the, polit the political police, abusing their power and responsibility for law and order by physically and verbally bullying a harmless and innocent man. And I know some of that sounds kind of familiar. And actually, that's kind of the point. And we'll get back to that in a bit. But in one single week in Jesus' life, the whole of society has either failed or completely turned against Jesus to the point of abetting his death. There is not one person on earth Jesus could have turned to. And this is important to see because these events drive us to an inescapable conclusion that the ultimate triumph of Easter is about one person. This is a solo project. There is not one other person other than Jesus to whom the triumph of Easter can be attributed to. What we're witnessing and what we're learning about here is power. And this really hit home for me a few weeks ago when I was in Hanoi, Vietnam, for work. As some of you know, I work for a charity called Care for Children. The organization's vision and mission is to see orphans and vulnerable children around the world who are living in orphanages placed into families. We believe that God created the family to care for children. And we also recognize the profound biblical mandate to care for orphans. I was on a five-day visit to Thailand and Vietnam. Three days in Thailand, two in Vietnam. And the short nature of the trip meant fitting in as much as we could in a short amount of time. But the visits themselves are the product of many weeks, if not months, if not years, worth of work. 
So here I was in Hanoi, Vietnam. Our goal is to unblock a persistent problem at grassroots level that is slowing down the development of moving children out of the orphanage and into local families. We'd had two robust but ultimately friendly and fruitful meetings with both the ministry responsible for overseeing child welfare, that's the first picture, and then the next picture, also the development of uh, the, the Department of Children's Affairs, who are directly responsible for implementing child welfare developments. The visit is going well. Our hard work is paying off. The mood in the camp is upbeat. Our next stop was a meeting with the local government and the orphanage staff at the orphanage. That's the next photo. And it was difficult. The meeting did not go smoothly. And we had to work through misunderstandings through translation, different priorities, the reality of challenges on the ground, perhaps not appreciated at higher government level, different motivations. In the end, we came out of the meeting with more doubts and questions than assurances and answers. And we were all feeling pretty flat. I was standing outside in the orphanage compound in 38 Celsius degree heat, in a suit and tie, waiting for our transport. And the children in the orphanage had returned from school and were running around the play area. I couldn't have looked more ridiculous and out of place. A foreigner looking worse for wear in stupid clothes for the climate, feeling flat after a disappointing meeting, and ultimately feeling completely powerless. One of the children was a boy that looked around seven years old, and reminded me of my own son, Nabi, of the same age. And I couldn't look at him in the eye. Despite 20 years of work with Care for Children, despite hours of meetings in the UK preparing for this visit, despite traveling thousands of sleep-deprived miles to get to this point in time, the powerlessness of my position to make sure that boy could grow up in a family and know the love and care of doting parents in a loving home like my son Nabi does, it could not have been more apparent. I wanted the ground to swallow me up. I felt inadequate. I felt like a failure. And it all kind of got to me on the flight back. And at one point, I was in tears as the hopelessness of the situation still stung. And I think the jet lag and the lack of sleep finally caught up with me, although I've got no, no excuse now. But thankfully, it was a night flight, and all the lights were out. And I wasn't left looking ridiculous in another public setting. Now, there remains a multiplicity of problems that need to be addressed in Hanoi. And there's nothing... I can do on my own that will create the solution once and for all. I am not 
that boy's saviour. And I can never be. I just don't have that power. Now in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve as God's image bearers. And to be his creation through which God's love and purposes could be bestowed. But after their sin and failure to trust God's instructions, the purposes of God were put to the nation of Israel to carry out. They were God's chosen people. But despite all the mighty men of God and the prophets and the signs, it doesn't read as much of a success story in the Bible. And so now, here we are in this so-called Holy Week, caught up in a whirlwind of ignorance, betrayal, negligence, and incompetence, where the purposes of God, once assigned to Adam and Eve, effectively the whole of creation, and then to Israel, God's chosen people, are now to be carried forward by the Son alone. Here's the crux of the issue. The mystery at the heart of this mess of Holy Week is also the mystery of the gospel itself. And this is how the theologian and author Tom Wright puts it. The mystery is that all, all alike have refused the Father's call and that the Son, who is himself, final, rejected messenger will take that rejection itself, will take that rejection itself and turn it into the means whereby the Father's purpose will finally be accomplished. A mystery in the New Testament isn't something unknowable or obscure. It's something that had at one time been hidden but is now revealed to God's People. So let me read it again. You've got it on the screen. The mystery is that all alike have refused the Father's call and that the Son, who is himself the final rejected messenger, will take that rejection itself and turn it into the means whereby the Father's purpose will finally be accomplished. This is the incredible, majestic climax of Easter. Jesus has used this week of events to fully expose the sinfulness of man's ways. In our own strength, in our own reasoning, with our own perspectives, the systems we build, whether religious or political, are flawed, inconsistent and fickle, and culminate in the death of an innocent man. The only innocent man in the history of, of our existence, our sinful nature, murdered him. And if such a miscarriage of justice from every section of society can happen against our creator God, then what hope do we have for saving ourselves 
And of course, the point is that this is as true today as it was during that week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Come and spend a week in my house, and you will see the brokenness play out in front of you. Spend a week anywhere, and you'll see it, even if it's in a log cabin on top of a mountain on your own. But the good news of Easter is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and what needed to be done. He always does. Jesus has the power, and Easter proves it. I just love this from the final chapter of Matthew, chapter 28, 1 to 7. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Now come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. Now firstly, don't let it escape your notice that the guards who were put there by both the political and religious establishments that, that enabled the crucifixion are taken out of the picture completely. They are rendered powerless. And the stone that they had put in place and sealed was rolled back by one angel, and he was sitting on it. And the first words he says to Mary and Mary are, Do not be afraid. They have lots of reasons to be afraid. They've seen the whole world turn against Jesus in the space of just a week. The disciples and those associated with Jesus had all run off and were in hiding. And as they turn up at Jesus' tomb, probably watching over their backs as they go, they experience an earthquake and are greeted by an angel who looks like lightning. So he's quick to tell them that they are safe in his presence. An angel is a messenger of God, and that will have been God's instruction. And then the angel says those words which now echo in eternity. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified but he is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. He's done it. If there's one person you can trust in this sorry mess, it's Jesus. 
And then one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, which encapsulates the Christian life when you put your trust in Jesus. He has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Listen, I have told you. Jesus is alive, and he goes ahead of you. As has been said in his word, so put your trust in him. Every day today, we see and hear of the brokenness of man-made systems all around us. And nothing much has changed since Jesus' day. But Jesus came to show us his way. And he proved on the cross that he alone has the power to save us. How does Jesus, the all-powerful God, display his awesome power? Jesus doesn't plot to kill you. He plotted to save you. Jesus doesn't negate responsibility. He received the full justice of death. We were due on the cross and then defeated death to give us eternal life by his resurrection. Jesus won't betray you or desert you. He has given us his spirit. Jesus doesn't bully you. He protects you. And he leads you when you put your trust in him. Jesus doesn't shout, crucify. He shouts, I bring you life and life to the full. If you can relate to any of this mess we see in Holy Week, in your own life, know this. Jesus, the all-powerful God, made known to us by becoming man, who made himself subject to our fatally flawed nature to the point of death, but then rose again to defeat death once and for all in order to gift us, gift us eternal life and to live in us by his spirit when we choose to die to ourselves and follow him, the only one you can trust goes ahead of us and he says, do not be afraid. Happy Easter, everyone. <laughs> Happy Easter. Come on. Happy Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you go before us. You were before us before today, Lord. You knew we were coming here. Lord, you knew the word that needed to be spoken today, Lord, and your spirit is working in us now. Lord, I pray that this spirit of yours will continue to work. Lord, convict us of our sinful nature. But Lord, in your compassion and in your power, lead us to who you are. Lead us to your perfection and to your power so that we know that we can put our trust in you. Lord, we celebrate Easter today because of who you are and how you lead us. And we give the rest of this day, the rest of this weekend, Lord, the rest of this holiday weekend to you. Bless this food now that we're going to eat shortly. 
bless the conversations and the fellowship. Lord, I pray especially that you'll bless this next section of the service, Lord. Pray that your power will be present and our faith will be in you. In Jesus' name, amen.